Hi friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Charles Eisenstein. He's a public speaker and author specialising in the ecology movement. The climate debate is chaos. Activists and sceptics can't talk to each other, and for every article suggesting one point of view, there's another refuting it. People are either malicious world killers or useful idiot dupes. Today, expect to learn why the climate change debate is so difficult to navigate why it's supposedly impossible to find an impartial climate scientist, Charles's suggestions for how to navigate this conversation while not losing your mind, and much more. This episode actually got inspired by a comment on the YouTube channel by Peter saying, when I hear someone that explains that climate change is real, it sounds comprehensible. When I hear someone explains that climate change is not real, it also sounds comprehensible. I really don't know what to think about this topic anymore. And I realised that after the episode with Patrick Moore, neither did I. So I figured that by bringing Charles on, he might be able to help me and you to navigate through this incredibly messy world of climate when basically no one seems to be able to agree about which points of view are accurate or false. I definitely also feel a bit of an obligation to try and present both sides of an argument or a balanced viewpoint from two different angles. But the problem with this is if I start to do it for climate change, then we have to do it for every time that someone comes on with a contentious point of view. I need to find someone who has an equally contentious point of view on the opposite side of the aisle. So that's not happening. And this will probably be one of the last episodes that I do on climate change. Uh, that being said, I've got Richard Betts, head of the UK's Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, coming on in November. And after that, probably going to draw a line under it for quite a while. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Element. It's a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything that you need and nothing that you don't. Each grab-and-go stick, you just tear the top off, mix it with water, and you're ready to go. It's got a science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And it replaces your morning coffee. You do not need to have a coffee first thing when you wake up because your adenosine system isn't active for the first 90 minutes of the day. Instead, your adrenal system is. And by having salt in water on a morning, you are going to help that adrenal system to get moving. Then, when you finally do have your first coffee of the day, 90 minutes later, you're going to feel it more effectively. So you're going to be better hydrated. Your adrenal system is going to be optimized. Your first coffee of the day is actually going to hit you when you have it. And you're going to have overall less caffeine throughout the day, so your sleeping pattern's going to be better. Element is the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA weightlifting and relied on by tons of Olympic athletes, high performers in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Special Forces, Navy SEAL teams, FBI sniper teams, and Marines, plus tech leaders and everyday athletes around the world. You can get a free sample pack all that you need to do is cover the cost of shipping. You pay nothing for the pack. It's $5 shipping in the US or £3.84 to the UK. Go to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom. That's drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom to pick up your free sample pack today. You pay nothing for it. Just pay for the shipping. Try it out. Take an entire week off from your morning coffee. Have salt and lemon. You can add some lemon if you want, but have salt first thing in the morning It'll change your life. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Protect your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library on as many devices as you have for £1.54 a month or something. It's less than the price of a cup of coffee. Basically, your internet service provider is allowed to sell your data to advertising companies that can then target you for ads 
websites that you're already buying products on are split testing you for prices on things that you're already supposed to be paying for. Skyscanner's doing it and Booking.com's doing it. And hackers and phishing websites can see your data and try to steal your passwords. All of this is saved with a VPN. But more important than that, you can access America's Netflix if you're outside of America. And if you're in America, you can come and see what we've got over here in the UK. You can move your location around and access Netflix libraries in domains outside of yours, which means basically you 10x your Netflix subscription for no money. You're already paying for your Netflix, so you might as well get a VPN and include tons and tons more movies and series from around the world. On top of that, you can use it across unlimited devices, laptop, phone, iPad. You can even put it on your TV so that when you're browsing Netflix or whatever on your TV, you can get that access globally too. 83% off, three months free and a 30-day money-back guarantee if you go to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. That's surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom. You can buy it and try it for 29 days. And if you do not like it, you can just cancel. No obligation. But now it's time to work out why the climate debate is such a mess with Charles Eisenstein. Right, so I wanted to get you on because recently I had a discussion around climate with Patrick Moore, who is the ex-president of Greenpeace. And as a part of that, it, it, it really got me thinking about the state of the climate debate at the moment, seeing the way that the comments kicked off, seeing how it makes people sort of very viscerally involved. And what it kind of taught me was the climate debate is mostly fucked. Like, it's mostly just a mess. and. I think that it's obvious a lot of people have tied their colors to particular flagpoles, that this is something which is very, very tribal in a way that I don't think climate should be. And obviously I've seen this, right? I've watched people get crazy about climate and glue their breasts to the street and lock down motorways in the UK and throw pig's blood on people coming out of Canada Goose stores. But I'd never been uh, as close to the conversation as I have been with this. And I wanted to get someone on. I mean, even this man. So I tweeted out saying, I want to get an impartial climate scientist on. Any suggestions? Most of the suggestions from people were impartial climate scientists don't exist. No one that does that. Someone said that by using the word impartial, you're already adding you're already trying to put some sort of a spin on it. We should just be bothered about the data. I'm like, hang on a second. Like, that's what impartial means. Like, I'm so yeah. Uh, like, if, if if you call it impartial, then you're going to get criticized for uh, uh, suggesting that there are even two viable sides to correct. Be had. Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah, that there's some sort of narrative and counter narrative, which anyone that yeah. can't see that there is. So I was just like, look, I need to get somebody on that I can just thrash this out with and can kind of help me understand the state of the climate debate at the moment. So, um, yeah, yeah, give me a hand. Yep. Well, what I'm going to say is true in pretty much any polarized debate, which is that the key to unlocking it lies in the questions neither side is asking and the secret assumptions that both sides share. 
So they get stuck in a debate that is defined by the terms of the debate and and not what they're not looking at. So in the ter- in, in the case of climate, you have one side that says uh, because of uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, we're at the at or past multiple tipping points that are going to cause runaway global warming and the end of civilization as we know it or worse. That's what one side essentially says. And there's some that are more alarmist than others. And the other side basically says, no, uh, carbon dioxide really isn't a problem. The warming, if there is any, it's not runaway. And there's nothing to worry about as far as the environment goes because global warming is not an issue. Okay. What both sides agree on is that the conversation, the primary environmental conversation is about carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. So I wrote a book about this topic uh, called Climate, A New Story. And what I came to in the research and in the the meditation and in the uh, whatever legal and illegal investigations I did into the nature of life Um, What I came to is that the planet Earth is alive. Its organs are things like soil, water, uh, forests, wetlands, uh, species, fish, whales. Every ecosystem, every species is an organ of a living being. Therefore, if we continue to cut down the forests, overfish the oceans, develop the wetlands, drain the swamps, destroy the soil, et cetera, et cetera, poison the water, then it doesn't matter if we cut emissions to zero because Earth will still die a death of a million cuts. Because it would be like if you had, like suppose you had a runaway temperature and it was because your organs are all getting eaten alive by a some, you know, by a flesh-eating bacteria And you're like, oh, man, temperature's rising. Better take some, you know, medicine to reduce my temperature. It's like, no, your your organs are are being destroyed. So what I came to is that where our attention as environmentalists needs to go is to the, the sacred living nature of this planet and to devote our care into protecting and healing all that's been damaged, which is a completely different emphasis than the standard narrative of climate change. And I could say way more about it, but I don't want to like, you know, talk for a whole hour. So maybe it's a starting point. Yeah. I think when we're talking about the specifics like that, so Patrick uh, specifically seems to have really positioned himself to uh, be a a counter voice to each individual thing. So whether it be sea rising or reductions of the size of the ice caps or deforestation in the Amazon or the number of uh, animals that are going extinct, his argument essentially was that, look, we have far more degrees of freedom with this than we think, that deforestation and reforestation are occurring at similar times, that increases in CO2 are allowing reforestation to occur in arid areas because there's more CO2 for plants to live in and so on and so forth, which I'm sure are arguments that you're familiar with. And there was this one comment, man, out of, I I think it's 150,000 hours that that episode's been watched in a couple of weeks and a lot of comments. 
Uh, but one of the ones that popped up, one of the one of the teams sent to me, and they said, when I hear someone, uh, someone that explains the climate change, it sounds comprehensible. When I hear someone that explains that climate change is not real, it also sounds comprehensible. I really don't know what to think about this topic anymore. And to be honest, like, that's where I am. That's my yeah. position. Yeah, I came to that too. When, when I, like, very few climate activists spend any time deeply investigating the work of the climate skeptics. And when, when I did that, I'm like, you know, like some issues I'm like, okay, I could refute this, but on other issues, I'm like, you know, they really have a point here. And what I came to is that it is really dangerous for environmentalists to hitch their wagon to the global warming horse, because what if that horse gets tired? as this guy Patrick Moore is saying, you know, like maybe the ice caps aren't actually melting. I mean, like I remember like they were predicting that that the Arctic would be ice free by 2015, you know, like that didn't happen. Like what if if the skeptics are right and we've hitched our wagon like of fracking, pipelines, like all this, all these stuff we've said, we can't do that anymore because climate change. Well, what if, you know, that runs out of steam. What I came to is like, I don't actually care if it's causing climate change. I still want oil exploration in the inner Niger Delta, which is displacing millions of people and destroying pristine wetlands and making oil spills that are like endangering children. And like, I still want that to stop. I still like, have you seen the tar sands excavation photos in Canada? You know, like these beautiful forests turn into this, this hellscape of like pits, you know, and, and dead trees, you know, and pollution. Like I want that to stop. I want the earth to be beautiful. It doesn't. And and I think that environmentalism used to be about that in the sixties. It wasn't save the whales because if we don't bad things are going to happen to us. It was save the whales because they are magnificent beings. Environmentalism fundamentally has to be motivated by love. And love Love is not love of life. Love of this earth, love of not just the Amazon, but of like the forest behind your house, of the place where you grew up, of the animals that you interact with. Not because they have some instrumental utility and, and that we should navigate according to some complicated self-interest calculation. That's not why we're here. As human beings, we're not here to maximize our rational self-interest. What do you think it's being motivated by at the moment from the environmentalist side? I think it is actually motivated by love. But the rhetoric is about fear. The rhetoric is about force. It's about, for example, let's pressure and force people to change. Let's force the corporations to change. But like, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, we should just always ask nicely for change, but we have to understand that pretty much every human being on some level cares about this world and cares about the beings on it, not because of some threat to themselves, to their profits and so forth. Environmentalism has to return to that. Otherwise, we're going to be in a war. I think that's what turned me off 
from a lot of the environmentalist movement was this inherent sort of sense that I was a bad guy if I drove my car or I was a bad guy if I wasn't going vegan or I was a bad guy if I didn't use recyclable plastics or something. Uh, Alex Epstein calls it human racism. And um, that's a really, really good term for it. This sort of self-hatred of humanity on the whole, that the planet would be beautiful and perfect without us here and that we're this sort of scourge on the earth. And it's wrong. I'm going to try and list list all the ways that I think it's wrong. It's wrong because psychologically that is not the way to get people to buy into your argument. If you truly want to actually get change, if you want people to agree with your position, you cannot... No one's ever been shamed into like willful compliance and support of a cause. They might begrudgingly support a cause, but they're not going to do it because they want to. They're just going to think, fucking hell, Lisa down the street in a furry coat isn't going to shut up if I don't make sure that my blue bins are out at night to recycle all of my cans. Uh, I think it's a bad idea because it polarizes the conversation. It means that you can't ever have a, uh, how would you say, there's no way to discuss this in a, a well-meaning, good faith, delicate manner. It's always got to be louder and bigger and more militant. Um, and I think that that's what's causing this, or that's at least part of what's causing this divide. You have people going, well, hang on a second. You're telling me, you're telling me that I'm some sort of a bad guy. Fuck you. I'm not a bad guy. Yeah. And it just rolls down the hill from there, man. The slinky starts moving. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, like part of the save the world narrative, which like that's already a red flag for me. There's an awful lot of been harm, a lot of harm that's been done historically by people who are trying to save the world. Like, do you know what the last big save the world campaign was? No. That was fully grounded in almost universally accepted science. No. It was eugenics. Brilliant. The big threat to humanity was genetic degradation, and the solution was to sterilize the unfit. And, you know, most scientists, most doctors, and most educated people believed in that. And we saw what, you know, the result play out um, in the first half of the 20th century. And that's not, I'm not trying to equate you know, climate change activism with fascism or anything like that. But it's just like when you think that you are saving the world, you become a fundamentalist because that's the most important thing and it's worth sacrificing everything else to that God. Another problem with it, in addition to what you mentioned, is that people who adopt that, okay, we're saving the world. You, because you're not with us, you are a threat to the to the world, to the planet itself. So so people who believe that, they emanate the stink of self-righteousness that just turns other people off. And as far as, because like on some level, you know that you are not a bad guy. I mean, assuming that you're not, you know, like a full-blown psychopath or whatever, like you have, your heart knows the truth that you care about life. And when somebody is telling you that you are bad or believes that you're bad, you're going to reject them as not a carrier of truth. 
same thing for humanity as a whole. Like, yeah, I'm well familiar with this narrative that human beings are a plague on the planet. And I think, so are, are you saying that we are nature's big mistake, that the gifts that make us human are worthless? That would make us an exception to every other species on earth. Every species on earth has unique characteristics that enhance the resiliency and the robustness of the ecosystem and that propel evolution to a new step. Are humans an exception to that? Are, are, are we just the, the, the evil beings that are in the way of beauty and life? Or is it that we have not yet applied the gifts that make us human toward their true purpose as a civilization? And what is that? It's to contribute to the furtherance of life and beauty on Earth, to make the world even more alive and more beautiful. What do you think the climate skeptics movement is getting wrong? The big thing is that there is no problem. There is no environmental problem. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them throw out the baby with the bathwater. Not only do they level what I think is a at least an arguable, it's not like a crazy critique of global warming, but then they tend to lump in every other environmental problem and say environmentalism is just a way to facilitate a socialist takeover and so on and so forth. Like, I mean, I my with my own two eyes, I've seen, I mean, just like, you know, like there's a debate, is there an insect apocalypse or not? You know, like there's all these studies about the rapid decline of insect numbers insect biomass, um, 80% in a lot of places. And I'm like, yeah, you know, when I was a kid and we went for trips, the windshield would get covered with bug splatter. And now like on a long trip, there's like two or three bugs maybe. Something has changed. My, my, my brother lives on a farm. Uh, there, the, the, uh, there's some streams that you know, come down from the mountain. And in the summer, they often go dry. And there's like, you know, kind of a muddy puddle here and there. He was walking the farm with an old timer who grew up there. And he said, yeah, back in the 40s, these streams were so full that you could not cross without wading boots all summer. So something is like, and even the stuff about, about reforestation and stuff, like, like the number of the, the, the land area of virgin forests is shrinking and the land area under tree plantations is growing. Biofuels plantations is growing. You can call those a forest, but they're a lot less alive than if you've ever been in a in a old growth forest. And I mean, you can feel the forest looking at you like there's a spirit there. This is the kind of perception we have to tap into if we're going to live on a different way on Earth and in relation to Earth. So so, yeah. The skeptics, what they're not seeing is simply the sacredness and the, the, the importance um, of life. One of the things that's interesting there, that Venn diagram, that crossover between being skeptical about this and then it being a globalist socialist takeover or whatever it might be. I was driving through Newcastle city centre and there was a anti- vaccine protest 
I'm not sure if it was for children, but I don't think it's being mandated for children in the UK anyway. So anyway, anti-vaccine protests, as I'm going past. And um, it was on September 11th, on the same day. So I'm driving past and it was traffic everywhere because the police are everywhere. So I'm sat and these people have got megaphones and they're shouting out and they've got the banners saying no vaccines and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like, the, it's interesting. You don't really see it quite so much in the UK. I know that America, you guys love a, love a protest. Uh, but in the UK, we've got a bit fewer of them. And then the lady came on the, on the megaphone and said, right, we are now going to have a one minute silence for the victims of the September 11th inside job. And I was like, oh, this is a vaccine thing. That, and you've also, like, the streams have been crossed here, and you've decided for some reason that because the vaccine, like, there's a big pe- bunch of people here that are here for anti-vaccines, but also believe that September 11th is an inside job. These two things aren't linked. Like, whether September 11th is an inside job or whether the vaccine mandate is you trying to have a globalist totalitarian takeover. But there was a lot of people that did that. And I think that you see uh, particular personalities get drawn towards certain movements because it's seductive in one form or another. And yes, I think that it leads to people having distilled blind spots, right? You become incredibly conscious of certain things and incredibly blind to others. Yeah. So I think one thing going on there is um, I speak of it in terms of the, the disintegration of the, uh, the story or even the mythology that helps us make sense of the world, uh, that, that tells us what things mean, that tells us what's real, tells us who we are, how to live. These stories are breaking down because they're not working anymore. So, so for example, somebody who once pretty much believed the dominant narratives about, you know, like how to be healthy, for example, you go to the doctor and the doctor fixes you and science is progressing and people are getting healthier and healthier and they can fix more and more things, you know, and then you get some autoimmune condition, for example, that was extremely rare 50 years ago and the doctor can't fix it. And like you, and then maybe you go to an alternative healer eventually when you get desperate and they can fix it. You're like, okay, what I've been told is not true. What else am I being told that, you know, might also not be true? So there's this creeping radicalism and it's quite normal almost to flip from everything they're telling us is true to nothing they are telling us is true. Everything is a conspiracy. Everything is a hoax. Everything's a lie. And people go down the rabbit hole. I mean, 9-11 um, uh, truther, I mean, that's not actually that far. You know, that's, I mean, you know, there are people out there who are, believe the moon landings were faked, um, who believe the earth is flat, who believe nuclear weapons are hoaxes. And, you know, that, that the, Sandy Hook school shooting was fake and like all these things. Um, and, and, you know, like people, it's so comforting to have a story of everything, a totalizing narrative that tells you that, that gives you the illusion of control in the world 
that gives you an illusion of certainty that tells you here's your place here's how to live like that's comforting so when that is stripped away when that crumbles people often jump to another totalizing narrative which could be a cult you know it could be like they join a cult or um, a radical political movement or or QAnon or something like that and and really where we have to go is into the place of being comfortable with not knowing maybe some things we're being told by the authorities are true and some aren't maybe the vaccines are much more dangerous and less effective than we're told yet they're not a diabolical plot by reptilian aliens to call the sheep <laughs> you know like it, that place of uncertainty is uncomfortable for a lot of people and it applies to the climate debate too like what if the biosphere is um becoming increasingly deranged and unstable and there isn't one thing that we can use to explain it all that's called fundamentalism i call it carbon fundamentalism the one thing and if we could only it's it's so so uh comfortable to have one thing that's the enemy and the key to all your problems it's that's why in a way like the virus like the coronavirus was a relief because here we have declining health all of these ambient anxieties and fears and here's something you can be afraid of here's something you can control it's an identifiable pathogen so we can you know lockdown quarantine distance etc cetera, etc cetera, and now I'm safe so with the degradation of the biosphere it's the same thing it's 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 painful to to watch watch it happen oh and here's one thing an enemy let's find an enemy and attack the enemy that is a pattern of action that civilization as we know it is quite familiar with like yeah has there ever been a time in history where humans have been able to deal with uncertainty effectively in that way and reach Aristotle's virtuous mean? Well, I think that the way that humans learn to deal with uncertainty is uh, by going through it. <laughs> you know, it's an initiation and it's, it's, it's a, a growth process. You inhabit one certainty, one story, one self, um, and it works for a while. Eventually, it becomes um, no longer hospitable. Like you grow out of it, you become something that no longer fits into that story. What and I'm thinking, what I'm thinking, is that for a long time, it was religion. For an awful yes. long time, the single narrative that we had that explained everything that we were able to put our faith in was that faith itself, God, higher purpose, whatever the ideology was, that would carry us through. And fuck, man, like if I don't hear, if I, if I try and have a conversation about some of the challenges that we're facing in the modern era that doesn't come back to, should we have just not got rid of religion? Um, I, it's, it continues to come up, whether it's identity politics, whether it's politics and extremism, whether it's the climate debate. I think that people struggle to be in uncertainty. I think it's inherently uncomfortable for humans. And I think that previously we could outsource this sense of uncertainty because if we feel uncertainty, there is something solid that we can wrap ourselves around, and that's religion. And now 
What is there to hold on to? You've got to make your own meaning. You've got to find your own purpose. Religion's out the window, man. Well, what happened was religion was replaced by a new religion called science. Science is a religion. And I'm not saying that it's just a religion or that religion is bad, but it's a religion. It rests on metaphysical principles that are taken for granted, such as uh, everything that is real can be quantified and measured, such as uh, variables can be controlled, such as experiments are in theory repeatable, that they don't depend on the attitude of the experimenter and the place and time where he is, um, that there's an objective world outside of ourselves. Like these, these are a few of the metaphysical assumptions of science. And then you have a priesthood that speaks in their own special language. You have uh, uh, true believers, you have heretics who get excommunicated when they lose their funding. You have a long training ordeal called graduate school to initiate you into the priesthood. Uh, you have a system for indoctrinating the youth. I mean, the whole thing, it, it tells you how the world began, like a religion does, it tells you the nature of a human being. The whole thing is religion. And it has provided that certainty that you were talking about for a long time, but now it is breaking down. It's breaking down because the paradise that it promised has not come to pass. Like we were, this is 2021, man. That, like you're maybe you're a little younger than me, but when I was a kid, even the year 2000 was like this impossibly futuristic paradise. You know, 2021, I mean, we were supposed to be like, you know, gods by now. But instead, life has gotten worse. People are, for example, less healthy than they were 50 years ago. Life expectancy is plateauing and starting to decline in the UK and, and the United States. Is that really true? Yeah. Yeah, life expectancy rose in the first half of the 20th century. It rose by 26 years in the US. In the second half of the 20th century, it rose by maybe six years. And now it's it's plateaued. And even before COVID, it was starting to decline. So, and we didn't, like another promise was we were going to engineer all poverty and crime out of existence. Political science was going to give us a perfect government. I mean, it didn't happen. So we're losing faith in science and people are having experiences that don't fit into science, that science says are impossible. So this is people even are, more uncertainty. Yeah. So So basically, we are facing a religious crisis right now, just like the one that that's that the West faced, you know, 300 years ago um, in the transition from Christianity to science. We're facing another one right now. It's profoundly disorienting. I suppose an interesting thing is that with science, you can have in the same way as you can have multiple interpretations of scripture or use different translations, the same data can be interpreted by two different people to reach completely opposite conclusions. So when we're talking about the CO2 parts per million and Patrick was talking about it, it's the Milankovitch cycle on this 80,000-year tilt of the way that Jupiter affects the axis of the Earth's tilt and wobble and blah, blah. And you're like, that sounds plausible. That sounds like it might be true. And then if you sit and listen to a Greta Thunberg or an Extinction Rebellion person for a little while, one of the calmer, less unhinged ones, and you're like, well, that sounds 
that sounds plausible. Like I know that we make more carbon dioxide. I know that my car puts out fumes out the back of it. I don't really know too much, but you think and you go, okay, so you've got sort of two it's the same world. Everyone's inhabiting the same world and somehow coming to completely opposite conclusions about it whilst relying on the thing that's supposed to be independent, the science. Yeah. Yeah. Like these scientists, in a way that like another way that they're like priests is that they perform these divination rituals using their sanctified instruments, their their microscopes, their computers. And it's like it's like consulting an oracle. And then they come and tell the public what the future is going to be. And now, like you're saying, there's basically a schism. And some of the priests are telling us one thing and a minority of them are telling us something else. And yeah, how do you know what to believe? You can go and look at the data yourself and make your own interpretations. But if even PhDs are vehemently disagreeing on the interpretation of it, and even more today, even on the validity of the data itself, because it's like, well, that data has been adjusted, you know, and, 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 and the more that science is politicized and woven into political narratives that are weaponized to defeat the other side, the less reliable data is. Because if your goal is to defeat the other side, then it's totally justified to change the data or, or to be very hostile to data that doesn't fit your narrative and subject it to intense scrutiny. But if it does fit your narrative, you just welcome that. I mean, we see this happening in all the COVID, the vaccine conversations as well. So, so how do you know? How can you choose? It's, it's in a way, like if you're honest with yourself today, there's no choice but to be uncertain. Yeah. That's what that yeah. message, that's what that comment said, man. When I hear someone that explains the climate change, it sounds comprehensible. When I hear someone that explains that climate change is not real, it also sounds comprehensible. I really don't know what to think on this topic anymore. You're like, yeah. dude, I, I had to get this story up for you. John Stossel, do you know who John Stossel is, dude with the mustache? Mm -hmm. It's like a American reporter, journalist -y dude. John Stossel sues Facebook, alleging defamation over fact-check label, seeks at least $2 million dollars. Former TV journalist John Stossel is demanding at least $2 million in damages from Facebook in a lawsuit he filed against the social media giant, alleging the company defamed him by appending fact-checking labels to two videos he posted about climate change. In a statement to Variety, Facebook spokesperson says, we believe this case is without merit and we will defend ourselves vigorously against the allegations. Blah, blah, blah. In one video, government-fueled fires about 2020 wildfires in California. Fact-checking partners falsely attributed to Stossel a claim he never made on the basis that flag, the flag content was misleading and missing context so that viewers would be rooted to the false attribution statement, blah, 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 back and forth. And you think, right, okay, not only now is it useful politically to further a particular cause, one side of the aisle or another, or an agenda, or to get people to feel one way, to create this sort of ambient sense of outrage or anxiety or whatever, uh, but individuals now are profiting from this you have individual people i'm going to be the climate scientist that's going to be you know patrick moore for all that he may or may not have good intentions he's trying to sell some books like he's trying to sell books and for as long as you're trying to sell books you do not have the purest intentions at heart because there are perverse incentives there the incentives are for you to come up with something which is maybe a bit more bombastic maybe a little bit more exciting than it would have been and that john stossel thing as well like it, it's on the side of Facebook to achieve, uh, appear impartial. It's on the side of John Stossel to try and battle back and use it to get more clout and then to get money out of them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I tend not to attribute it attribute people's um, militant opinions too much to wanting to make money. I think like there's psychological forces that are at work that are more powerful, like wanting to belong, wanting to seek approval from you know a certain segment of the population at least taking sides taking sides is psychologically satisfying because now you belong now you are accepted now you have external allies that tell you that you are good because you're on team good in the war on evil and at a time when um the stories that help us create an identity through participation in a common goal or breaking down, people are having an identity crisis and therefore they gravitate toward partisan political and, and other opinions. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Because we used to have a unifying story of civilization. It didn't include everybody, but it was a pretty broad unifying it's story. Everybody that you knew. Yeah. Yeah. It was of ascent. It was of progress. And, you know, you're an ambitious young man. Well, <clears throat> here's what to do. You become a rocket scientist. You become a doctor. You become even a lawyer because you become a functioning, productive member of society. And you are part of this glorious ascent of humanity toward this, you know, amazing future. Like that infused life with meaning. And we don't have that anymore. And people are just grasping, struggling to make life mean something. How much do you think I keep hearing problems of the modern era attributed to the fact that this is the first generation who hasn't done better than their parents? And I definitely think that there's a sense of that going on. If you hear the sort of language that Greta Thunberg uses where she talks about you are destroying our future, you older people, people who had it great who've raped mother earth for all that she is worth and so on and so forth and then we are paying the price and you're not going to be here but we are and it's our job to fix it it feels like that's an element as well that as we're talking about perhaps some of the promises of technology and science starting to top out or at least slow down that's causing yeah. <clears throat> the deceleration is being felt by people and they're going whoa whoa whoa, whoa hang on a second something's wrong maybe we need to try and kickstart this star again yeah you know the irony the irony is that that well for one thing that you know all of this ecological destruction hasn't actually worked you know i mean if it if it were making us happier and happier maybe you could justify it but it's not even doing that and uh, the irony is that our happiness, fulfillment, uh, joy, thriving is actually readily available and it doesn't depend on more technology, more resource consumption or anything like that. I don't know if you've traveled a lot, but if you have, like, where do you find the happiest people? Are they in London? Are they in Tokyo? Are they in New York? Or are they in you know, uh, the Gambia. Dude, happiest, you know? happiest people that I ever met were in a town called Pai, 
which is the n- most northern town in Thailand. And mm-hmm. I volunteered at a uh, elephant sanctuary and reforestation uh, site for a while. And this town's got a, a lot. Its main street is a large dirt road and all of the others are small dirt roads. And I rock up and I'm on a, on a moped for the first time and got small swim shorts on. And I'm going around washing these elephants and helping people dig holes in the ground. And it was just pure bliss. And it sounds so new age and hippie and kind of unsustainable. It sounds like it's the sort of thing that by its very nature is a holiday. You go, well, I don't know, man. Like, what are we doing things in, what's life in service of? If it's not pure fulfillment and joy in the moment, how much are we overcomplicating the situation? The ends now have repurposed the means to a point where you're like, well, everything's, everything's been turned upside down. Those are the happiest people I ever saw. People in a, a city that you have to travel for four hours on a road that's literally called Vomit vomit Motorway because it's got so many bends that people throw up, tourists throw up in the van on the way there. They were the happiest people I ever met. Yeah. Yeah, and and if and their, you know, GDP per capita is probably very low. They're the the BTUs of energy that they consume per capita are very low. A place like that is a ripe target for what's called economic development. And when those people stop engaging in their traditional livelihoods, stop producing their own food and cooking for each other and building their own houses and doing all that stuff in a gift economy and begin purchasing things and working for global corporations, their GDP goes up. And in the statistics, it looks like their quality of life has improved and their resource consumption goes up too. So really, like to take it back to, you know, climate change and stuff, I mean, really what this whole thing is about is the question how to be human. And we are, as a species, or at least as a civilization, reconsidering that question. We're facing the bankruptcy of the answer that we had been pursuing for a long time. And therefore, everything is on the table now. Everything. What was a better step to move forward? When you wrote your book, did you think about some recommendations for a better way to have this discussion? Um, I mean, I had like, you know, a bunch of practical policy recommendations, uh, new priorities, but the animating principle under those priorities is, is love of life. So I said, first priority is to preserve whatever pristine ecosystems are still here, which is like, especially the Amazon, the Congo. Um, but even like any small wetlands, um, or, or like any place that is has health in it, we protect it. And the second priority is to restore, regenerate the broken places, especially agricultural soils. And then third is to stop dousing the world in poison all the time. What's poison? You know, herbicides, uh, insecticides, uh, toxic waste, radioactive waste, electromagnetic pollution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that is partly what's behind the insect apocalypse. And then fourth priority, and in my mind, it's a distant fourth, is to reduce carbon emissions. Can't hurt. You know, it's putting like more stress 
on a system that's already stressed. So, but as far as like, how do we talk about it? Yeah. Um, the, the, the principle is whatever you say, it comes from a trust in our collective purpose and the purpose of each individual human being, which is to contribute to life and beauty on earth. And when I speak to anybody, it could be, you know, uh, uh, Exxon Mobil executive, and I'm I'm standing in the knowing that this person on a deep level cares about life, has places that are special to him, and that on some level wants to serve life, wants to be a force for, for positive change in the world. If I stand strongly in that, then... He knows that I'm an ally. He knows that I'm actually on some level on his side, even if I disagree with his opinions, and he'll listen to me. He won't be like he, he people can feel how you see them. People have a have a internal uh, guidance system like we can sense. And if I'm truly willing to see the best in him, then my words will have power. He'll trust me. He'll know that I'm not just trying to convert him. I'm not trying to convince him. I'm not trying to dominate him, to like fight his evidence and logic with my superior evidence and logic and make him run away with his tail between his legs. This is because what I was saying is, is the nature of the revolution that we are in right now is in how we understand ourselves to be who we are, therefore who we are being. And we have to stand in the new human, which is actually the ancient human. Also the new human, which is like, yeah, I am here to give to the world. I'm here to, to, to receive and to give, to be part of evolution to be part of the planet coming more and more alive. Every stage of evolution has been a coming more alive of the planet from the first eukaryotic cells to the first multicellular organisms, to plants, to flowering trees. Like the, the world got more and more and more alive. That's, that's what life wants. It's to live. And we are the latest creation of nature for the same thing. When we stand in that and see each other as that, then we'll we'll figure out what to do. The fact that every conversation appears to have the worst possible intentions if you're on opposite sides of the fence, it's always a presumption that you are coming at this with an agenda or some sort of bad faith or whatever. There doesn't seem to be any benefit of the doubt given to people. There doesn't seem to be any hope or any redemption or any possibility that they may not see the world in the same way that you do. So what do you think is more likely? Like they're convinced by their view. Obviously, that's why they hold it. There's very, very few people who actually actively hold a view with which they internally disagree. Almost no one does that. So why do you think the person that sat across from you believes the thing that they do? 
because they see the world in a different way. Their convictions are alternate to yours. And yet, there seems to be such... Everyone's so quick to throw bad faith or grifter or shill or whatever terminology you want at the at the other side. Idiot, willful killer of the of the world, uh, v- vegan, stupid people stopping people getting to work on the morning on a motorway. And I think that's that level of aggression and animus in the conversation. Is it facilitated by frictionless communication online? Yeah, maybe. Probably probably a bit of it. Uh, is it communicated by fracturing, permitting people to fracture into different and different subgroups and having no grand narrative that holds them together over the top? Yeah, yeah, probably. When you throw all of this together, kind of doesn't surprise me that this is a challenge that we're facing. And we see it with everything. Politics, education, childcare, gender, race economics whatever you want fucking pandemics yeah fractured yeah. frictionless yeah and it comes again to the crisis in belonging you know when you when you ask well why does somebody have the beliefs and convictions that they have is it because they made a dispassionate survey of all of the possibilities and applied critical thinking and sifted through all the data No, usually people believe what is convenient for them to believe. Convenient in what sense? It fits in with other things that they believe. It garners the approval of people around them. It enables them to say that they are a good person. It um, helps them to belong to a community of other people who hold the same beliefs. So people naturally gravitate toward those kinds of beliefs. That's uh, one of my favorite sayings is you cannot reason somebody out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into to begin with. So, yeah, this is, I mean, human nature, this is human nature because we are social animals. And, and for thousands of years, the most important thing was the acceptance of the group. In ancient times, the worst punishment wasn't even execution. It was ostracism banishment, which probably amounted to execution because people were dependent on each other. But, you know, I mean, I've, you know, been subjected to a certain amount of canceling and denunciation online. And man, it hurts. You know what I mean? Like on a deep level, it's, it's, it's really distressing. And yeah, like I can grow a thick skin, you know, and, and, but when, when it happens, my instinct is to find my tribe. Find the people who will say, oh, yeah, those fuckers are just totally wrong and they're, they're you know, subhuman in some way, unlike us. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, my people. And, and I recognize that pattern as very close to the origin of the problem. That, that tribalism, that mob mentality where, where social tension is relieved by turning on some victim. And I better make sure that I'm not that victim. I better, uh, you know, be tight with my folks so that I don't get dehumanized and victimized, scapegoated. The world isn't right and wrong anymore. It's in groups and out groups all the way down. That's all there is. 
Yes. And and that whole thing, it sounds dark, but that's not all there is to human nature. There's also a transcendent dimension that we are we are being presented with right now as a choice. And it's about it's about compassion, it's about forgiveness, it's about putting yourself in someone else's shoes, it's about generosity of listening, it's about humility, it's about humbling yourself to what's true, even if it might not fit in with your self-image, even if it might mean that you were wrong about something. Because let's face it, everybody, everybody listening to this is probably wrong about something, one of their deep convictions. If you are, okay, if you are, how are you ever going to know that when that is so part of your identity? Like, like if, and if you want the other people, the wrong side, to ever change their mind, then you have to be willing to change your mind too. Otherwise, if you're not willing, because you just know you're right, you're setting an example of the human being that they're going to conform to too. They know they're right just as much as you know you're right. So what is and that's not to to say like betray what you genuinely know, but it's to look at, okay, the things I believe, how many of them do I know from direct experience? Why do I believe the things that I believe? And what would it be like to not believe them? What would I lose to not believe them? And am I willing to not believe them? Or are those things I would lose too precious that even if I'm wrong, I am not going to let go of this belief. Like, let's get honest with ourselves first. Then we have the possibility of actual conversation rather than the debate or really the shouting match that prevails in public discourse today. Perfect place to leave it, man. Thank you so much, Charles Eisenstein, ladies and gentlemen. If people want to keep up to date with what it is that you do, where should they go? Um. I have a, uh, my website is kind of in stasis right now. So Substack, I'm, I have a, uh, um, a blog on Substack that I'm publishing right now. CharlesEisenstein.substack.com? I believe so, yes. Cool. I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes below. Charles, <laughs> right. thanks so much for today. Yep. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that that episode helped to alleviate some guilt on not being able to work out what's going on with the climate debate so much. If you enjoyed it, then share a screenshot on Instagram and tag me at chriswillx. Also, don't forget you can get seven free sample packs from Element by going to drinklmnt.com slash modernwisdom and all that you do is pay for the shipping plus you can access the entire world's netflix library for like two dollars or one pound fifty for a month by going to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom i'll see you next time